Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. We're glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents, if you've got elementary school age kids that you would like to dismiss to Aletheia Junior, now would be the time to do that. Their teachers will be right back at that back uh, doors and uh, ready to take them away to um, their, their lesson time. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 8. That's where we're going to start uh, our time uh, this morning. And, um, you know, I'm a fan of, of history, uh, maybe not to the level of Pastor Theo. And I know you guys got to hear from him last week. He's uh, a, a much bigger buff than I am, but I, I still enjoy it nonetheless. Um, I've watched multiple World War II documentaries on Netflix, much to my wife's disappointment. You know, she'll She'll be out, and typically it's kind of whoever gets to the TV first after the kids go to bed kind of gets to decide what's going on. And I'll have the World War II documentary, documentary on, and she'll walk in and just be like, really? Like, we know what happens. Like, like you've, you've watched this one. This one's just in color now. And I'm like, yeah, but it's fascinating. She's not at all uh, interested. Uh, but a story that's often puzzled historians over the years is the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the way in which it commanded for centuries the entire uh, attention, really, of, of, of the ancient world and then the way in which it fell. I mean, it was one of the largest and wealthiest empires in the history of the world. At one point, stretch, stretching across the majority of Europe, the Mediterranean world, the Middle East, and most of northern Africa. And yet by 500 AD, for all intents and purposes, it was done, at least on the world stage as a massive world empire. And there have been arguments amongst historians for years as to why that was the case. And, and there are many factors, actually, if you, if you studied enough, there are many factors that led to their decline. But one of the things I want to point out, and I'm going to share some, of them with, share some of them with you, is that the vast majority of things that led to the decline of the Roman Empire were actually internal that they rotted from within as opposed to being underneath siege and pressure from other world powers. One of the things that happened is that at one point, Rome became so big that in order to properly govern the, the entire nation, they split off into two separate kingdoms. They split into the eastern part of the empire and the western part of the empire. And this was a good short-term political decision as it allowed them to add more central government over those various kingdoms. But what happened is it led to long-term disaster because neither one of those two kingdoms wanted to properly support the other side. And so a short-term gain led to a long-term problem. As they expanded in the first century and, and you know, even prior to the first century AD, that over-expansion led to poor military spending, which plagued Rome. And they took more and more land, and as they took more and more land, they had more and more land to defend. And therefore, one of the things that happened to them was they ran out of troops for their own army. And so they started hiring foreign mercenaries. And not surprisingly, foreign mercenaries don't quite care about the glory of Rome as much as Roman citizens. Therefore, they would get into these skirmishes, and if things started going south for the Roman legions, they would just leave. They're like, yeah, not interested in dying for you guys. I'm out. And they would just walk off. 
economic issues plagued them. And there was an over-reliance on slave labor. You know, in order to pay for their massive military spending, every time Rome conquered a new territory, they would institute slave labor over those that they conquered. But eventually, they stopped conquering and simply maintained the land that they had. This, therefore, led to a labor shortage and led to an economic decline across multiple sectors inside of the empire. And then lastly, and probably one of the most important things that was that is overlooked in Roman history was the corruption in leadership, which led to government waste, assassinations, civic disasters, and a growing distrust amongst Roman citizens and the very leadership they were meant to follow. This led to a perpetual cycle of more corruption, more assassinations, and more incompetence. You know, it was just like a self-fulfilling prophecy that came over and over again. And while there were many outside forces working against Rome over the course of its history, those had been at play for centuries long before the fall of the Roman Empire. It wasn't until these factors internally began to arise and compound that you see Rome come to ruin. And I share that story with you this morning because we are arriving at a point in our study in the book of Judges where Israel's actions internally are going to lead to their own ruin as well. I want you to look at Roman, I mean, excuse me, at Judges chapter 8, verse 28 with me. And I want to point something out to you. Let me read that to you. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Unless I am missing something, that is the last time in the book of Judges that we're going to see the Lord give rest to the Israelites. And, we're, and that's going to be the case because what we're going to see this morning is the apostasy and the rebellion and the wickedness of Israel is going to start reaching a point where God cannot allow them to be restored to rest because they refuse to repent and follow him as he has commanded them. And so I've got two big points that I want us to see this morning. And then towards the end of our time, we're going to actually see the ruin that came over Israel. But two big points this morning on how ruin came to Israel internally, how they led to the demise of their own failing and their own ruin. The first one is this, that they forgot God's faithfulness and that led to ruin. And this is a, a, a theme that we've actually seen consistently throughout the book of Judges at this point, but the author of Judges is going to make it abundantly clear this morning that this is kind of like the nail in the coffin that really started to get things going for them. And then that failure to remember God's faithfulness is going to lead them to trust in really, really poor leadership, and that bad leadership is going to lead to disaster. So moving to Judges chapter 8, starting in verse 29. Theo mentioned last week, so I don't want to dwell, dwell on this too much. These were some of the verses that Pastor Theo covered last week. But our, our story the, the previous three weeks was looking at a different aspect of the story of Gideon. In that first section, Pastor Daniel led us through the story of Gideon, and what we saw was that Gideon kind of went to war with the idols of Israel before he did anything else. Then we saw that Gideon went to war with the Midianites to 
push them out of the land and bring rest and peace to Israel. And then last week, what we saw is that what Gideon was supposed to go to war with was kind of like the internal politics and working of what was going on inside of Israel. But as Pastor Theo pointed out to us, Gideon does not finish well. Far from it. His leadership goes from pretty good to really good to really bad rather quickly in, in his, in his storyline. And, you know, it's interesting, Judges, you know, the author of Judges doesn't necessarily call Gideon out on specific sins, although he makes it pretty obvious. I mean, one of the things he's like, hey, he had 70 sons and many wives and concubines. And the, the, the author doesn't say that that was in direct violation of God and his law, but it makes it pretty clear, like, this wasn't what God wanted. And so he's got these sons, and as we will see, that's going to end up leading to a massive problem for Israel, because as we saw last week, the Israelites wanted to make Gideon king. And Gideon's kind of like, no, I'm not going to let you make me king, but you can kind of treat me like I'm a king. And so there's like, they're, they're in this weird flux, but Gideon is not the focus of our story this morning. His kids are. And look at verse 33 with me. He says, the, the author of Judges says this, as soon as Gideon died, so track that, like he's dead, then this happens. The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So Israel's problems arise immediately after Gideon dies. So they've got good leadership. They at least have a guy that loves God and wants Israel to follow after God that is interested in listening to him. And the moment he dies, look at what it says. They did not remember the Lord their God. That's kind of like a, a, a catch-all phrase for something that the authors in the Old Testament want us to understand and know about the Israelites. It wasn't just like they kind of forgot who God was. It wasn't like they had a theology test and got a failing grade on it. No, what actually happened is they completely forgot everything God had done in their history to rescue them. They did not know anything of God's faithfulness to them or his promises to them. They had forgotten his word. They had forgotten his commands. They had forgotten how he had delivered them from the Egyptians. He forgot how they had delivered them into the Holy Land and how he had again and again, every time he raised up a new judge, delivered them from the oppression that they had received from the nations around them. And what this ends up doing is it causes them to start looking in other places for help. Guys, this is something that C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, and I think it's, it's really, really important that we under, understand this, that, that God designed the human race to kind of operate on their need for him. And I'm paraphrasing kind of what he says, but he, he says that, that human beings, you and I are created right, in the image and likeness of God, but we need him and long for him, whether intellectually we assent to that or not. 
that there is this vacuum inside of us where we, our hearts and our souls long and desire to run after and know the things of God and in knowing the things of God, worship him and obey him. And so therefore the Israelites would have needed the same thing. And what you see in the history of the Israelites is that whenever they turn their back and forget about God's faithfulness to them, they run to something else. And in the case of the Israelites, it's often the Baals. And as I said early on, as we studied the the book of Judges together, I said that we have a tendency to do the exact same thing thousands of years later. We just don't run after the Baals. We might run after politics or sports or money or fame or relationships or a job or prestige, but whatever it may be, our hearts are longing for affirmation, affection, attention, love. And when we forget about the creator and who made us in his image and likeness and that God loves and cares and provides for his people and promises to be there for them, that he asks us to follow him and obey him instead and that if we do that, it will go well with us. When we walk away from that, we bring ruin and destruction to our lives. And in the same way, Israel does that and the results are not good. It says they turned to the Baals, but this time they actually made Baal Barith their god. They fully rejected and started worshiping something else. And this is actually new, right? See, what Israel was doing before is they would, they would kind of say this, well, Yahweh is still our God, but we kind of want the Baals to help us too. Like we, we, we're interested in God plus something else. God plus the power of Baal, or God plus the power of the Asherah so that we might see fertility and receive blessing. What they're doing now at this point was, actually, Yahweh, we're done with you. We're not even sure you exist. We're going to worship the Baals now instead. Because their, their apostasy is growing. And as it's grown, it says that they failed to show love and honor to Gideon's family for all they had done for Israel. And as we're going to see, that's going to be problematic. Now, I want to point something out because I think that the author of Judges wants us to kind of see something here. Showing honor and respect to people is something that Scripture kind of expects of those that call themselves followers of God. And here in the West, we have kind of like this this tendency to distrust leadership, push back on leadership, not show consistent respect and honor. And some of that maybe even in some ways is healthy. You know, otherwise we would still be paying taxes to the British for tea. But here we are thousands of years later, well, hundreds, right? Right, running ourselves, maybe well, maybe not so well, depending on where you lean politically, Right? But some of that pushback and distrust of leadership has led to positives for us. But in the West, we kind of have this tendency to have this distrust of leadership. And what God's kind of trying to point out to the Israelites is, like, look, guys, you guys are not even like 40 years removed from being under severe oppression from the Midianites to the point where you couldn't even reap your own harvest. And the moment that guy dies... You don't care about him or his family or what he had taught you any longer. Do you recognize the foolishness of that? 
that you immediately think there's a new way for you to do something, and in that new way of doing it, you're going to achieve some higher level of satisfaction or hope in your life. See, a consistent theme in Scripture just in general is that a failure to remember God's faithfulness and what he's done, especially through other people, will inevitably always lead to ruin. Right, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is Moses' final sermon to the Israelites before they're getting ready to enter into the promised land and he passes away. He gives one kind of last final sermon of, hey, I want you guys to remember these things about God and his faithfulness to us before right, I pass away and you enter into the Holy Land. And starting in verse 9, look at what he says to the Israelites. Know therefore that the Lord your God is, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him face to face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. See, there's a couple of things that, that Moses wants to get across to them and he wants them to remember. The first one is that God has been faithful to them and that he can be trusted. And therefore, because he is faithful and can be trusted, he should be worshiped that God will keep his promises and he will continue to keep his promises. But one of the things that God had promised to Israel is that once they had entered the Holy Land and God had given them possession of it, is that if they obeyed his commandments and continued to follow after him, it would go well for them. And if they did not, it was not going to go well with them. And as we see Moses here, he's, he's saying, look, God repays evil with discipline, and you're not going to like the consequences. Therefore, be careful to obey him. And as God's people forget about the faithfulness of God, as they walk away from worshiping him, from honoring him, from fearing him, and from obeying him, they run after other things, and the ruin begins. I want to encourage you guys this morning to, to think about something. If you, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want you to think through this for a second. There's a reason why Christians for thousands of years have encouraged other Christians and done certain things for thousands of years. Things like reading our Bible praying, gathering on Sunday morning for corporate worship to remember what Christ has done and celebrate together his goodness towards us, sharing our faith with others and in that sharing the testimony of how we've seen God's faithfulness in our life. We got to celebrate that last week with baptisms, partaking in the Lord's Supper regularly and remembering what Christ has done. These are means of grace God has given us to drive us to remember his promises and his faithfulness to us. We reflect on his faithfulness 
And that drives us forward in worship and hope. You know, there's been times over the years where as, as a pastor, you know, I'll say to someone like, hey, like, I really think you should get involved in, in community here at the church. I really think you should make it a priority to attend corporate worship settings. I really think you should make it a priority to read your Bible and pray. And sometimes people will push back and be like, oh, you're a pastor. You just, you know, like, you just say that because you want me here. And it's like, I mean, yeah, I do. But I want it more so because I know it's for your good. There's a reason why Christians have been doing these things for thousands of years, and it's not to brainwash you. It's that the world actually is really, really good at doing the brainwashing, and we are really, really quick at forgetting God's faithfulness to us and the fact that he keeps his promises. And the more you disconnect yourself from the, from the heartbeat of community and walking in step with Christ and what he's done for you, the quicker you will be to forget his faithfulness and start running and turning to other things. And we need only look to the example of the Israelites of what not to do and what the results will be if we fail to stay in step with remembering God's faithfulness and walking with him. Meaning, this is a reminder and a call for us to prioritize pursuing God and knowing him. Maybe even at the sake of other things. Maybe even good things. Because otherwise, the ruin that can come from within is far worse than missing out on that opportunity that you might want. Which is exactly, by the way, what happens to Israel once you get to chapter 9. Right? Brent read this for us this morning, so I'm not going to reread it to you. But Gideon's poor leadership as a father and as a husband led to poor leadership inside of his own family. It also led to Israel's poor leadership, which ultimately led to this one guy taking charge in Israel by the name of Abimelech. And the story kind of goes like this. Abimelech arises to power. He conspires with the leaders of Shechem, right, to rise to basically king of Israel. And in order to consolidate that power, he just casually kills 70 of his siblings. It's like, yeah, want to be in power, not interested in a power grab. Let's call a family reunion together. And then he kills all of his brothers. One brother escapes, a guy by the name of Jotham. And as he escapes, he kind of gives this speech to Jotham and to the, to the leaders of Shechem before he runs away into exile. Let me read that to you, starting in verse 16. He says, now, therefore, if you acted in good faith, and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with Jerubal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, 
Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So Jotham basically curses Israel. Here's, here's basically what he says to them. He's like, if you guys acted with integrity in installing this guy as a leader and allowing him to kill 70 of his siblings, then good for you. But if you haven't, let both sides be devoured by fire for their wickedness. It's like, he's like, don't just, don't just see Abimelech be punished for his wickedness. No, you guys are going to be punished as well. Basically, if we wanted to translate this another way, we would say this. Jotham is saying to Shechem, you really should have done better in deciding who you would follow. You really should have picked a better leader. And this is a warning thousands of years later that we should take seriously as followers of Jesus. That who you follow matters. And to examine your leaders or they will lead to ruin just as Abimelech does Israel. Maybe there's no better example of this than Adolf Hitler. Let me share these words to you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on what he saw from Germany in Hitler's rise to power. He actually wrote this while he was in prison before he was executed. He says, upon closer observation, it becomes apparent that every strong upsurge of power in the public sphere be it of a political or religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with stupidity. The power of the one needs the stupidity of the other. The process at work here is not that particular human capacities, for instance, the intellect, sudden atrophy, sudden atrophy, or fail. Instead, it seems that under the overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their interdependence and more or less consciously give up establishing an autonomous position toward the emerging circumstances. The fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us to the fact that he is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like that have taken possession of him. He is under a spell, blinded, misused, and abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless tool, the stupid person will also be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. This is where the danger of diabolical misuse lurks. For it is this that can once and for all destroy human beings. See, Bonhoeffer's point and it's the exact thing we see in this story in Judges chapter 9, is that no bad leader ever rises to power by accident. They get there through the failure of those around them to use their brains to examine the qualifications of that leader. And according to Bonhoeffer, it's his opinion 
that they're allowed to rise to power because those that allow them are intoxicated by the power of the leader they are supporting instead of actually examining their qualifications for leadership. Church, this matters deeply, probably more than maybe any other time that I can think of in my lifetime. God cares who we follow. He does. God calls his people to a higher standard. You know, if you look at this story and you pause and think for a moment, what would allow a group of people who are the the elders, the, the local leaders of an entire city, tribe, section of Israel to allow a man like Abimelech to rise to power and allow him to consolidate that power by murdering his own family? What would possess a people morally to think something like that was okay, especially as followers of Yahweh? And yet they're intoxicated with the power and the promises that Abimelech has given them, and so they give themselves over to him. And there are dozens of verses that we could use and examine in the Bible on leadership, but I just want to look at one set of qualifications, those of an elder or a pastor, just so we have an idea and say like, hey, God cares deeply about character, and these qualifications that we're going to look at here in just a a second are are primarily for the, the office of pastor or elder inside the local church, but I would submit to you that they should probably be things that we look for for a leader in any area of your life. Whether it's a coach, a boss, a political leader, someone that you would allow to lead a civic organization that you might be a part of, that there should be things that we look for in our leaders that God is not quiet on. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. There's a number of things that The Apostle Paul mentions to Timothy here as he writes these qualifications for an elder or a pastor. But let me just maybe consolidate them into a couple of key ideas, right? The first one is that a leader that Christians follow should be committed and consistent. You'll see that in verse 6, right? He's not a recent convert, meaning he's shown commitment to the faith. And he mustn't, or or if he is, he'll become a puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, meaning that he's shown commitment to the faith and he's been consistent in that faith, meaning that there should be a pattern in this person's life that is seen over the course of time. In verses two through three, I'm not going to read those again to you, character matters. 
right? Leaders and people that we should follow should, should have a certain type of character that, that we follow after. And we should care about it. That they should show things like self-control. That they should be respectable and hospitable. And that as Christians, whether we like it or not, if someone doesn't display those characteristics, we should not support them. It says in verse 4 that their conduct matters. How have they done in an area of their life, especially one that's tied to the type of leadership they have? And if they displayed an inconsistency or an inability to lead there, they shouldn't be put in leadership. You know, what? basically what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, hey, if a guy aspires to the office of pastor or elder inside the local church, he aspires to a noble task because it's a difficult thing to do. But if that guy is a terrible dad and husband, do not make him a pastor. He's clearly shown you that he can't lead in his own household well. What makes you think he's going to walk into the church and do a good job? That goes for other areas of your life as well. And then lastly, verse 1, capacity. He actually aspires for the job. That someone should actually desire to do the work of leading. This is not an exhaustive list but basically what we see is that leadership matters deeply to God. And when poor leadership is allowed amongst God's people, ruin comes every time, just like it does in Judges chapter 9. And I'm sure there are some of us in here who have been Christians and followers of Jesus long enough to have been a part of churches where this type of thing was not taken seriously. And I've seen churches over the years that allow bad men into leadership and churches get blown up over it and people get hurt. Failure to demand godly character from our leaders will lead to ruin. And let me just say this as an aside and a note, especially to those of you here this morning that are covenant members of Aletheia Church. You have a responsibility that if I or the other pastors of this church fail to meet the qualifications of leadership and an elder of this church, to not stand for it. That means if, if I get up here and I am not displaying the qualifications as laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you are to fire me. And if the elders won't do it, you demand they do it. And if they don't do it, in our constitution and bylaws, you have recourse. That's how seriously this is to be taken. Because when you inevitably do not take it seriously... God will not stand for it. And ruin follows every time, which is exactly what happens to Israel. I'm not going to read verses 22 through 55 with you. By the way, just so you guys know, we are posting every week how much scripture we're covering to give you the opportunity to read ahead of time what happens. But let me just tell you, briefly summarize what happens in verses 22 through 55 in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech rules for three years after he's killed his brother and Jotham goes into exile. And then Shechem and their leaders get to thinking, wait a minute, if he killed 70 of his brothers to consolidate power, what might he do for us if we make him angry? Duh. Like you, didn't, you didn't see that? Like that wasn't apparent in the beginning? It's like, oh, well, you know, maybe that was just a weird coincidence that he killed 70 of his siblings. And so they start freaking out. They're like, this guy's kind of, he's a little unhinged, you think? 
And so they're sitting there and they're seeing that Abimelech's a little unhinged and, and they start to worry about it a little bit. So they have the brilliant idea to hold a festival, get drunk at the festival, and make some guy named Gaal their leader. And Gaal's like, guys, I got this because I get really, really brave when I've had some wine. I'm going to ambush the crazy dude that killed his brothers, and I'll kill him. And then we'll just put new leadership in place. It's that simple. right? Now, not surprisingly, the psychopath king has people listening in on these conversations. And so he hears about it, and he comes to Shechem, and instead of him setting up an, uh, getting ambushed by Gaul and his followers, he actually sets an ambush up for that guy. And he fights Gaul. Gaul fights it and is driven out, driven away, right? And then Abimelech, instead of running after that guy who tried to kill him, he turns back on Shechem and he goes into the city and he sets an ambush for the leaders. He captures the city and he burns the entire city to the ground and kills almost all of them. Really cool dude, right? Definitely the type of guy you want leading your country. Then, as if that's not enough, Right? He heads to another city called Thebes. He captures it. And the people that escaped from his ambush this time around run into the city tower. Right, They have set themselves inside of it to protect themselves. Now, the people of Shechem did this exact same thing, but he burns the tower down, and they all burn alive inside the tower. When they get to Thebes, he's about to do the same thing, and there's a woman inside the tower who's like, oh, not today, dude, and grabs a millstone and drops it on his head and, like, cracks his skull open, and so he turns to his armor bearer and is like, kill me, I don't want to have died to the woman who dropped a stone on my head, as if it's not going to get recorded that that's what happened. And you can't make this stuff up, right? Like, this is one of the reasons why I love God's Word. It's like, this is, like, better than any daytime, like, talk show ever. Like, reality TV would, like, just die for a story like this to keep our attention. And so, you get to the end of this story, and this is kind of where we're at. Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, all of them are dead. Thebes, the city's in complete ruin, most of the people are dead. Abimelech, the wicked king and leader, dead. Ruin has arrived to this entire country. They have no leadership in place. Their military's in shambles. Israel's in ruin. It's sad. Right? All because they had forgotten the faithfulness of the Lord and didn't obey him and demanding godly character from their leaders. See, ultimately, the story of Abimelech is a story and an example of God's judgment and God's mercy. And you're going to be like, where is God's mercy in the midst of this? Because it doesn't really seem like it. But what we see, right, is you see God's judgment in the fact that he gives Israel over to itself. It's like, fine. Right, you want to you forget that Jerubal called you back to to me, that Gideon had led you back to me, that I delivered you from the hand and the oppression of the Midianites. You want to run to idols? Let, let Baal Barith lead you. Let's see how that goes. Let's see how well it goes with you. And let's see the consequences that come from that. And ruin comes. Death, 
destruction, sadness, sorrow, weeping. And yet, there's a glimmer of God's mercy in the midst of this whole story. Because God ultimately still preserves Israel and does exactly what Jotham says is going to happen, which is deliver them from the wicked leadership. He allows evil to destroy evil. The evil and wicked leadership of Shechem that caused this leader to be placed over Israel is destroyed by Abimelech, and Abimelech is also destroyed through his own wickedness. And although God's judgment is slow, it is there. Church, sometimes in life, when we look out and we examine the circumstances of life around us and we see suffering and difficulty and trial, it's easy to sit back and say, yeah, I, I just don't see how God is present in all of this. And you may even be living however you want in light of that, kind of like Israel did. It's like, well, you know, like, Clearly, it's not going too bad for us. Like, God's not punishing us for this, so must be okay. Abimelech must be a pretty good dude. You turned your back on following him and think God's not going to do anything about that. And I, I'll just say this. It never ends up being the case at the end of the day. God's long-suffering with his people is meant to encourage repentance, not licentiousness. To put it another way, when God is patient and slow in disciplining his people, it's not meant to allow for you to act even more wickedly and in rebellion. So here's how I would like us to, to respond to this this morning because, you know, scripture teaches us that God is long-suffering with his people far more than we dare, we dare realize. And that, that long-suffering is ultimately, right, proven and put on display to us and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Right, that God puts up with rebellion and wickedness from his creation for generations and generations, and yet... In his mercy, he made a way through Christ for his people to be reconciled to him. But that does not mean that God one day will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. And so the question that each and every one of us have to ask is, in my own personal life, in my, in my own sin and rebellion towards the creator of the universe, I have one of two options. I can allow that sin and that rebellion to be punished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, or I can one day stand before the judgment seat of God and stand on my own merit. And not a one of us will not be found wanting if that's the case for us. And so here's what we're going to do. I want you just to consider one question for, for me this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus here this morning or not. Am I faithless? Is there an area of my life that is faithless? Obviously, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've been drugged here by a parent or a girlfriend or a roommate or a coworker or a neighbor, it's pretty easy to answer that, right? You don't believe. 
right? How, how is that working out? What does, how does that stand in light of Scripture? But for those of you here this morning that, that would call yourself a follower of Jesus, where are you being faithless? Is there something or someone that you've put your hope in more than God that they cannot provide? I'm guilty of this. Putting my hope in my work, in my family, in my wife. For some of us, it might be politics. For some of us, it might be football teams or other sports. And the story of Abimelech and the ruin that comes to Israel is a warning to all of us that if we don't repent and turn and respond to God in faith, that ruin will come upon us.